May 12, 2017, New Vrindavan, West Virginia. Struggles with Maya is their hope and help. So we're going to be looking this session at dealing with Maya, dealing with things, uh, behaviors, thoughts, feelings, etc., that are not favorable to our Christian consciousness. And this is going to be another uh, interactive work, a fun job. So <laughs> I'm not going to just sit over and entertain all of you. Uh, do be prepared to participate. And the uh, main participation that's going to be required here is individual. So if you do not have something to write on and something to write with, you most definitely need to do that. I have extra blank pieces of paper here, and we should have some pens and pencils. So is there anyone who needs paper? So it's blank paper down the bottom here. Don't use all of them because we want some of the other seminars. And uh, there's pens here. If you don't have enough pencils. Um, most, of, most of what you're going to be doing here, as I said, is individual. Um, it's also confidential. No one else is going to look at it but you. Uh, if you yourself don't have any problems in your life, then you can uh, write down some things that you experience other people have problems with that you can help them with. Okay? So, if you're coming here not for yourself, but you're coming here to help others, then uh, you'll need to write down, you just took that on the top. What are you looking for? This one? No, that's not for here. That's not for now. That's for tomorrow. What do you need? Oh, one of those handouts. Are they all handouts? gone? No, they're on the back chair. Okay. Right I'll get it. Yeah, if you didn't get one of the handouts for the seminar, they're on the back chair. Okay. You can also obviously write on the back of that. Yes. Yes, we have extra pens. Does anyone else need one? Uh, one request with these pens. Is yeah, please. <laughs> so just well, before you leave, just put it back here at the table, so we'll have them for tomorrow's and Sunday session. Is that okay? Obviously, you can take the paper with you. I have some more pens. Anybody else need a pen? Anybody else? see those as service and feel spiritually enlivened by them. So today we're going to be, now in this session, we're going to be looking at aspects of our life that are not sadhana and not service that we want to jettison. So we're looking at the, the parts of our life that we would like to uh, get rid of or transform in some way. Tomorrow morning, we're going to be looking at scheduling and prioritizing. So how to arrange our life so as to have time for sadhana and particularly to have time for high quality sadhana. So that's going to be tomorrow morning. Tomorrow afternoon, we're going to be looking at how we can have an awareness of Krishna, consciousness of Krishna in everything that we do. 
And again, they were going to be looking at primarily non-sadhana time, although we are also going to look a little bit at quality sadhana tomorrow morning, both quantity and quality, and then tomorrow afternoon, how we can become Krishna conscious, aware of Krishna in the non-sadhana parts of our life, which is a little different from what we looked at this morning. This morning we're looking at our attitude, seeing things as service, seeing ourselves as a servant, and tomorrow afternoon it's more really just seeing Krishna there. So they're related, but they're looking at it from a different angle. And then on Sunday, we're going to be doing Sunday's a little different. Sunday is going to be a bit more of a meditative seminar. Uh, we have music and, and songs and uh, on the processes of surrender. So these four today, the two today and the two tomorrow, we've organized according to six of the eight principles of Astanga Yoga, as we mentioned this morning. And what we're going over today is particularly touching on uh, these, Yang Niyam, Dharana, and Dhyana. So in order to get rid of the, of the impediments in our lives, the things in our lives that help keep us from, that keep us from Krishna, we're going to be looking not only at Yang Niyam, what should we do and what should we not do, but also uh, a similar principle to what we looked at this morning, with who we are and what we want to, what we actually want to do. So what is Maya? Maya is the illusion that causes us to see things as separate from Krishna. And Maya is Krishna's energy, which is really fascinating actually, that it's Krishna's energy that allows us not to see Krishna. So the irony of that is even when we're doing, thinking, or saying things that pull us away from Krishna, it's only Krishna's energy and Krishna's mercy which allows us to do that. Isn't that interesting? Krishna says, I also give forgetfulness. So during the times when we forget Krishna, Krishna is there allowing us to forget him. Isn't that weird? So when we're saying, when we're talking about Maya, we're saying activities, you know, behaviors, thoughts, feelings, speaking, body, mind, words, that make us think I am this body. Something that, that solidifies our identity as this body. And any activities which induce us to see the world as separate from Krishna. Right, this morning we talked a lot about how to see the world as connected with Krishna. But there are certain activities, certain ways of thinking, certain ways of speaking, certain ways of thinking that tend to produce this idea of separateness. Yes, you understand? Okay. Then there are certain activities that make our heart very hard-hearted. There's, there's things we can say, things we can do, that, that put our, our mind in a situation, our emotions in a situation. So we looked at thinking we're this body, getting on the platform, that my happiness is in, is in the happiness of the body, of just seeing things separately from Krishna, and then just like helping a nice person is what we're looking at here. You know, where we're just selfish and nasty and, and etc. Okay, what I'd like you all to do again, this is confidential, no one else is going to look at it, unless you want to show it to them, I mean, how are you going But this is confidential, I'd like you to make an honest list, I'd like you to make an honest list, 
of what are the things that you are struggling with. And it shouldn't be something that you know you just did one time 50 years ago or something like that. But if, if there's things that, whether it's you know breaking the four principles or whether it's something more minor, uh, whatever it may be, uh, gossiping about other devotees perhaps, you know whatever level it may be. If you can, if, and if you, if you don't do this, you'll really just be an observer for the rest of the seminar. This is things that impede your spiritual life. Anything that anything you're doing that's separating you from Krishna, whether it's you know I'm drinking coffee in the morning, I'm playing computer games six hours a day, I yell at my kids, you know I spread rumors about devotees, I don't clean my house. <laughs> Um, and as I said, if you don't do this right now, then you will, you will really, then this will not be participatory seminar for you. So that you're welcome just to be an observer. Uh, I don't, not, not requiring participation. However, if you do this, you'll get the most out of the seminar. If you don't have anything like that in your life, if your life is already totally fucked up, and you never do anything wrong, then you can make a list of things that you know other people do, and you can use what we're going over in the seminar as a way of finding ways that you can advise and help them. Is that okay? So we're going to be going through uh, a number of different solutions. I'm not pretending that this is absolutely comprehensive. But I'm hoping that you'll find something here that will help you. And we're going to be giving very practical and a wide variety of practical solutions. Uh, first, we're going to look at the causes. So we have this list of, of problems, things that are impeding our Christian consciousness, things that we know are spiritually wrong and harmful for us, or you could also put on that list, again, things that other people have come to talk to you about that may not be your personal problems. And our question is, and of course this was our genius question also, is, you know, why do we do, say, think things, speak things, that we know are wrong, that we know are harmful to ourselves? And this is, of course, the problem among materialistic people also, that somebody, they want to go out smoking and they smoke anyway, and they want to go on a diet and they eat cake, and, you know, this is, it's a general human problem that we have certain ideals that we want to achieve. And we know what we need to do to achieve those ideals, and we know what hinders us from achieving those ideals, and yet we still do the things, or say, or whatever the things, that make it hard for us to achieve them. So one cause is uh, other people. So some of the times we do wrong things because of other people. Here we're looking at other people in our work environment. So there may, there may be people in our work environment who induce us to do things that are against our ideals. Yes? And I mean, this, is, this picture is a little extreme, but in certain parts of the world, drinking alcohol at work is really considered part of the job. Um, and if you don't go out drinking, you basically can't keep your job. I've heard it's like that in Ireland and in Korea, that there's certain, you know, it's just the norm. And it, it may not be as extreme as drinking alcohol, but I mean, I remember even when I was an assistant principal at a public school, and 
I was harassed by the principal that I was vegetarian. There were two other teachers in the school who were vegetarian, but she actually harassed me. You know, I would generally just, just bring my own food. I would generally just, you know, cook something and bring my own prosotto. But at one time there was some big conference and I thought it, would, it wouldn't exactly be very good that I'm opening up my own little plastic case, you know. So I thought, okay, I'll just get some salad. And, and she was just harassing me the whole time. <laughs> and, and, and I remember talking even to devotees. They say, you know, there's a Christmas party and everything has eggs in it and there's all this alcohol and people are really harassing you. You know, really, and it may be again something, something less than that, maybe something not breaking principles. So, can you look at your list and see is there anything there on your list where there's a problem with coworkers or anything with work? Maybe just bring it down. Okay. Okay. Sometimes the problem at work is not what you're doing, but what you're selling. Right? So I remember talking with one devotee who had a job at a convenience store and he said, okay, we're selling, we're selling uh, alcohol, we're selling condoms, we're selling lottery tickets, and we're selling, you know, meat. What should we do? I said, quit your job. We'll get to that at the end. But, um, you know, so it may not be things you're actively doing, but it may be things that you're being pressured to participate in uh, one way or the other. In fact, the devotee just asked me this two days ago. Someone who's out, out of job, you know, dipping into their savings, really looking for money and saying, oh, I was just offered this great job, but what it is, is trying to find a cure for a kind of pneumonia that cows get when they're packed up tightly being herded to slaughter. And the cause of the pneumonia is that they're being packed up tightly and herded to slaughter, and they want me to help find a cure for it. Do you think I should take the job? So it can't be something indirect, do you understand? So next probably from family. Now this is something I hear all over the world, always, all the time. You know, my family, I, I could say every week, at least once a week, I get an email or a chat or some kind of conversation from somebody who's telling me that because of pressures from their family, it's hard for them to be Christian conscious, that their family are pressuring them to do things and so forth that are in opposition to their Christian consciousness. And this is true, by the way. Uh, sometimes I think us, uh, those of us who are not Indians think that this doesn't happen in Indian families, <laughs> but that's not true. So it's just as much of a problem in Indian families as it is in non-Indian families. And sometimes it may not be, you know, just pressure, hey, go to the movies with us, or you know, eat this thing, but sometimes it just may be this kind of pressure from families. You know, pressure where you don't have any time for your sadhana. You have to do, you have to do, do this job, and this study, and this thing, and this thing, and this thing, and this thing, and this thing. And they're constantly pressuring you to be acting a way that's opposed to your spiritual life. So if you can look at your list, and if there's anything there that has to do with family, if you can put an F by it. Yeah, actually the whole idea of the session is we, we were just going to blame all these different groups. 
our own mind. You know, maybe our own bad habits in the past, uh, what we did when we were kids, or something like that, before we took our Christian consciousness, or, or just our own mind. There's, there are bad habits and, and difficulties that really we can't blame anybody else. It's not it's not coworkers, it's not family, it's not friends, it's ourselves. And we're doing it to ourselves. So if we could just put an S by any of those that come from ourselves. Association. 
And we are, just like Shri Prabhupada told you in a deep time, he said, if you have two people that are compatible, you'll make advancement, and 200 that are not compatible, nobody makes any advancement. So, we are, we are told to find Sangha that is compatible with us. Now, of course, we should associate with more advanced people to serve them, and less advanced people to help them, but I'm talking here particularly about on the friend level, on the equal level. Because I found this to be the greatest cure for any kind of maya at all. To have people who really encourage you in your spiritual life. Because you're at similar levels and you're going through some of the same things together and people that you share your realizations with. I, I'm part of a little group where we, we actually have never all met each other on a physical level. So I've met all of them, and some of them have met each other, but the whole group hasn't. Not everybody has met anyone. Uh, so we just associate electronically. And the basic principle of our group, right, the basic principle of our group is that it's only Krishna Kittah. That's it. So we share quotes from Shastra, we share our realizations, uh, sometimes we share some difficulty or question that we're going through, we do not talk about our kids and husbands and sicknesses and we just don't. I mean, sometimes we might say, I have to visit the family for a week, I'm sorry, I won't you know, be active very much. But we don't talk about that part of our life at all. We just don't deal with that identity. We just deal with the Jivarasvara-Pyakrishnara-Nijadasa identity. Uh, we certainly don't talk about any kind of management or anything going on in the devotee society like that at all. Like, not at all. And I found the group to be just so enlivening and so exciting. It's the first thing I look for every day is did anybody post anything? And I, I, try, to, I try to post something, you know, just a little quote. Okay, this is what I read today in After Devotion. This is what I read in the Bhagavatam. And I, I've just, I've never had such an amazing impetus for my spiritual life as having just, you know, I think there's five of us in this group. Just a little bit of group devotees like that. And I've been members of lots and lots and lots of group devotees. But it was usually, okay, we're going to write this scholarly paper or we're going to do something like this. And I, it, it's really, I really found it to be, to be absolutely amazing. The other kind of side of something that I found to be very helpful for me are people who are more advanced than me and who I will take uh, correction from. So people who I will take correction from. I was speaking to one a senior devotee some time ago who said some things that I found very disturbing. And I asked this devotee, do you have anyone in your life from whom you are willing to take correction? And it was kind of back and forth. And finally this person said to me, well, no, I don't have a living shiksha guru. And I said, well, maybe you should think of getting one. So I, I found it very helpful to have somebody, one or two, it doesn't have to be, you know, ten people, who I trust have my best interest at heart, who I trust, that someone who I trust is not envious of me, doesn't have any malice toward me, someone who actually knows me, so they're not just giving some kind of wild advice, you know, out in the stratosphere, and someone who has some kind of insight and understanding that I don't have, and who's willing to correct me when I need it, and from whom I am willing to take correction. And what I found is the combination of those things, of having 
uh, equals in friendship with whom we can discuss Krishna Kata and having superiors from whom I am willing to take even very heavy chastisement. And, and actually take it, you understand? Not argue with it. And just, just, even if it's really heavy and even if I really don't like it, and even if when I first hear it I completely disagree with it, I don't argue and I sit down and I think about it and I pray on it and 99.9% .9 of the time I say, you yeah, know, you're right. Thank you. And that, that kind of sadhusanga I've just found to be extremely, extremely helpful. And of course there's a sadhusanga in the books. You know, there's a sadhusanga with Prabhupada, through his books, through his lectures. There's sadhusanga with all the great devotees themselves who have the books, Sukadeva Goswami, Narayani, and so forth and so on. But having that association with devotees, it, it removes the desire for nonsense from the heart. It, it makes us feel, yes, Krishna consciousness is real, and I can do it, and Krishna will help me, and I don't want to do something that's an impediment to my Krishna consciousness. It, it changes our motives and our desires. And this, my friends, is true always. Always. As we go up through the levels of Krishna consciousness, when you get to spontaneous practice from Vaidhi Sadhana to Raghunuga Sadhana, the main difference in Sadhana between Raghunuga and Vaidhi is that in Raghunuga you take shelter of a devotee who shares your mood of how to worship Krishna. So it's, it's very devotee dependent. You know, inviting Sadhana in general, taking shelter of the devotees, Raghunuga, very specifically so. And if you read the song, Shirupaman Jaripada, how many of you are familiar with that song? So, Shirupaman Jaripada is written with such a mood of love to Rupamanjari, intense mood of love and surrender. And this is, is, a, is what's happening on the spiritual world. That it's not just that it's just me and Krishna, it's me and Krishna and the devotees. And everyone's a devotee. The cows are devotees, the blades of grass are devotees, the flowers are devotees. One devotee was saying to me the other day, you know, the clothes in the spiritual world are alive. You know, when, when I first put on the sari, actually when I first put on a sari when I was nine, but when I first put on a sari in the temple, and we didn't have real saris in those days, you know, they just bought pieces, long pieces of polycotton cloth, and all of us unmarried women wore saffron. And at least the temple where I joined, they said, the more pleats you have, the more chaste you were. So we had like 25 pleats. And it was this heavy fabric, it was, it was tucked in like this much. So it was dragging on the floor, we had this constant gray border, you know. It was very hard to keep on. I remember I'd pin it at a safety pin here, and it would ride up like this. Really, really, really hard to keep going. So, I remember thinking, oh, I'm so fake. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, this is what he was saying to me, how in the spiritual world the clothes are alive. And so, you know, as you're moving, they're voluntarily moving with you. And I thought, wow, that is just so totally cool. That'd be cool. Yeah, the living clothes, they're also devotee. Your clothes are devotee. <laughs> Actually, Actually, it's really funny because sometimes we call it about devotional clothing. Hare Krishna! Clothing isn't very devotional. But in the spiritual world, it's actually devotional. You know, your clothing has some devotion. So my point is, in the spiritual world, 
We have this circle with the devotees. You know, everything's a devotee. So this principle is not just like, okay, you have to hang out with the devotees. But it's, it's operating always. And Rupa Goswami is explaining that one of the causes of rasa with Krishna is this uh, vibhava. And the vibhava, the stimulus to rasa, it starts with Krishna, Krishna as the enjoyer, and the devotee as the repository of the relationship with Krishna. So that's the first thing is sadhusanga. And if we're struggling with something and we don't have good sadhusanga, get good sadhusanga. I don't know how to get it. Ask Krishna. It sounds simplistic, but it, it, it's true. Really say to Krishna, I'd like some good sadhusanga. It doesn't have to be physical and geographical. It does not have to be physical and geographical. My most enlightening sangha is not in physical proximity most of the Okay, now this is something we talked about this morning, and this is our identity. So we talked about it this morning in a different context, uh, but the same principle applies here. That why are we doing things opposed to our Krishna consciousness? Because we have the wrong identity. I'm thinking, I am this, I am that, I am the other thing, and therefore, if I'm this, then that's what I'm going to do to be happy. You know, I'm a teenage boy, therefore I should play video games to be happy. That's what teenage boys do. That's, it's, it, ultimately we have an identity problem. So if we think, I am Krishna's servant, what should Krishna's servant be doing with their time? Would Krishna's servant be gossiping? Would Krishna's servant be binge-watching television shows? Would Krishna's servant be eating, you know, the tenth piece of cake? Would, whatever it be. Is this, is, is this appropriate for Krishna's servant? So to change our identity, and changing our identity requires really good sadhana, which we'll talk about tomorrow but in order to change our identity, to really understand, you know, I, I am a soul, I am a Christian servant. But it's, it's a good thing we can say, well, who am I? Why, why, why do I think this thing is going to give me pleasure? Who do I think I am? If I really understand that I'm a soul, would this give me pleasure? Okay, I'm a soul. As a soul, is this something? No. I, I personally found this to be very helpful in, in certain cases. Well, 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 So, when I was 14, I fell in love with a boy in my art class. And he didn't love me in return. Thank you, Krishna. <laughs> Thank you, Krishna. He wanted to love me in return. He was, like, friendly. But anyway, I fell in love with him, and, you know, it's just, I don't know. I think I would have jumped off the edge of a cliff for this guy. If you ask me why I fell in love with him, I have no idea. So, even after I joined the movement, I still sometimes would think about this guy. And it just got so irritating. You know, it was, it was really you're like, why am I thinking about this guy? And so one time I looked at a picture and I said, Krishna, you know, you're Madame Mahan, you can take this away. And then I understood something. I understood this is just biology. It's not you. You were 14. If you had lived 100 years ago, you would have been married at 14. And I thought it's just like little birds, you know, little birds. You know about little birds when they get out of the egg, whatever's the first large moving object, they think it's their mother? 
Yeah? You've heard about that, right? So it's like, it just happened to be the first good-looking boy you saw when you were 14, and it was like, how's it going? And once I got that, once I was like, oh my god, it's just biochemicals. It's not me. And then it was gone, it was just gone. And it bothered me for and it was just gone. It was just gone, it never came back. So sometimes it's a thing of identity, and just saying, oh, it's just biochemicals. I was talking with a devotee recently who was going through some, some trauma with her family that one of her kids was really going through a hard time. And she just said, you know, I'm just losing my Christian consciousness and I'm so upset and I'm having anxiety and I'm yelling at people and I'm just trying to stop it. And I said, instead of trying to stop it, why don't you just observe it and say, oh, as a mother, naturally I feel this way. And just say, well, that's interesting. Those are mother feelings. And distance yourself from it. I'm the soul, I'm the observer of these mother feelings. I said, don't either grab them or try to destroy them. Just watch them. Be like the ocean where the rivers flow into the ocean that doesn't get disturbed. And she wrote me back the next day, she said, She said, it's no longer bothering me. She said, once I stop trying to control it, you understand? Once I stopped trying to control it and I just observed it, it went away by itself. So many times we have an identity problem where in our particular material identity we're trying to grab something. If the way we try to get rid of it is to push it away, that's still within that identity. Go to the observer, go to the soul platform, look at it and say, oh, that's just the material identity. And many times you'll find it's very easy to give something up. Okay. Now this we've heard all the time, and I'm sorry if you say I've heard that all the time, Pramila, and I really don't want to hear it again. Uh, however, for the sake of completeness, uh, we will also mention this one. It is called Get a Higher Taste. Yeah, sure. Get a higher taste. Wow. Uh, but it's true. So Shiva Prabhupada, Nectar Devotion and the Preface, one of my favorite parts of Shiva Prabhupada's books. Something that I've read more times than I can count, and I could probably read it for the rest of eternity. He talks about how everything that we're doing is motivated by a desire for rasa. And everything we're doing is motivated by a desire for pleasure. Now, what I'm about to suggest that you do is going to be what we call very counterintuitive. It's just like what I mentioned last time about identity things. And you don't want to either grab them or push them away. What we tend to do with identity problems, with why that comes from identity problems, try to repress it. But you don't want to do either. You want to observe it and you want to see what it is. And as soon as you observe it and see what it is, it goes away. So most people don't want to do, actually a number of things that we're teaching today are things that people just naturally resist. So you're probably not going to want to do this, but I'm telling you, it really, really works. Now, each of these things are going to work for different things, and as I said, we're kind of moving down here. You have to figure out why you actually enjoy the thing that you're doing that you don't want to do. See, what we usually do is with the things we don't want to do, we tell ourselves that we don't enjoy them. 
don't like them. We tell ourselves that there's nothing good in them at all, and therefore we should give them up. But that's ridiculous. If we didn't think there was some enjoyment in them, we wouldn't be doing them. Why do we resist this? Because we don't want to admit that we're enjoying something that's harming ourselves. That's a very, 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 very difficult thing to do. It requires something very odd called humility. And a, and a rather substantial dose of it. You know, I am getting pleasure from doing something that is harmful to myself. That's weird, isn't it? Isn't that weird? Isn't it strange? How can I be getting pleasure and doing something that's harming myself? And it may be harming others. I may also be getting pleasure out of doing something that's harming others. It may be harming my relationship with them. It may be harming me and them and my relationship with them. And the way we present things to ourselves is, no, 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 I'm not enjoying this. I'm doing it for other reasons. <laughs> I'm doing it because of circumstances. I'm doing it because, uh, you know, bad habit, but I really don't like it. And, but it's not true. If I'm doing whatever we're doing, okay, whatever we're doing, anything, I don't care what it is. What we're thinking, what we're feeling, what we're saying, what we're doing, every single thing we're doing is motivated by a desire to enjoy. Everything. Everything. At least we're hoping is going to give us pleasure. It may not give us pleasure. We're hoping it will give us pleasure. You understand? Like sometimes you need something hoping you'll enjoy it and you don't. But that doesn't mean that wasn't your motive. Yes? You follow? Okay. Why did I go see those already movies? I was hoping that I would have actually the pleasure I was looking for there was friendship. You follow? I was thinking I was going to enjoy a rasa, a friendship with these girls. Yes? I didn't. I actually ended up being angry at them, and I hated the movies. So I, I didn't enjoy that rasa, but that was my intention. Okay, so what are the rasas? Can you tell me what the rasas are? Passive. So neutral. Neutral is like awe. Respect. And the next one? Serving. Helping. Right? Feeling useful. What's the next one? Friendship. Next one? Parental. That's any time we're doing any kind of caring, helping, but from a superior position. So serving, we're helping from an inferior position. Parental, we're helping with from a superior position. Okay, and the next is, of course, romantic. Then the secondary process, they are? Chivalry. Chivalry has four parts, by the way. And what else? Gaslings. What else? Humor. Humor. It's also joy. Gaslings is also disgust. Chivalry is like sportsmanship. 
sense of being righteous and charity. One more I can't think of right now. Okay, the next one. Anger. Some things. So we just talked about, like, let's say, anger, right? 
So people are going to political rallies or watching sports games in order to feel angry. Anger is a lesson. They may also feel get a, a rush of anger by yelling at their spouse or yelling at their kids, right? which is a lot worse than yelling at the referee on the television set. So how could they experience that? So what you have to do is look at that. So you know, if your problem is that I'm yelling at my kids, if that's one of your problems, or yelling at my spouse, and you say, well, I don't enjoy yelling at my spouse. I don't enjoy yelling at my kids. I just get so frustrated. No, you're actually enjoying the anger of yelling at your kids. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay? Again, this is a very hard thing to admit. You really do not want to admit it. I'm talking about anger. I'm not talking about normally you say, hey, you can't hit your brother over the head with a fire truck or stand in the corner. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you actually get angry. You understand? So there's a whole category of narcissism we place in the category of weakness of the heart. So basically there isn't such a thing as we're deriving pleasure. Well, the weakness of heart is, derive, is trying to derive pleasure out of something in which there is no pleasure. The material perverted rasas do not actually have any pleasure in them. Even, even the, the humor and joy, even you know, you're feeling compassion at the poor starving child, and so you give some charity, and then your heart is moved. It's not actually why is it not actual pleasure? All these things done on the material platform are essentially what? Sorry, this is so heavy. Maybe we should all just stop now. I don't know. Oh, don't hate me, please. I'm talking about other people. We'll do it that way. Okay, this doesn't have anything to do with anybody in this room. Just other people who are not here. I'm not going to say this about any of you. So when somebody out there, when they're doing that, well, what is it really about? Who's it really about? Well, I, I mean, I'll talk about myself. I don't mind. As you're listing those things, I can see how, like the anger, for instance. Um, when I get angry, I'm making myself right. I'm, I'm driving pleasure out of, look how right I am. Yes. Look how I'm standing up. And, yes. And I can see that. But my question is, like, for instance, the anger. Um, what about, like, alert behavior? You know... Um, but we'll get to that. Okay. We'll get to that. Okay. Hopefully. It's five o'clock. Should be able to get to that. So all these things, yes, they're all essentially about my false ego. Yeah. Every single one of these. Now some of them, even materialistic people, will tend to say, yeah, that's probably about your ego. And other ones will say, well, that's not about your ego. They're all about they're all about, you know, I'm trying to be happy, often at someone else's expense in some way. And about how I'm great and I'm the center. None of that is real pleasure at all. What, what happens is, Prabhupada says, seeing the naked form of material desires. What happens as you advance in Christian consciousness is you start seeing these things for what they are. I mean, as a crude example that I think none of us here do, so it's, it's a safe thing to bring up, is something like mediating, where people are getting happiness at, at the pain of another living being. They're deriving happiness from eating the body of some being who died in pain and suffering. So they're directly getting happiness off of that living to be suffering. 
And it's a very ghastly kind of happiness. You know, but, but they don't see it like that, do they? They're not thinking, wow, I'm, I'm enjoying at being the indirect, in most cases, instrument of the pain of another living being. Because that's the whole definition of evil. If you want to say, what's evil? Evil would be, I'm getting pleasure at someone else's suffering. And ultimate evil is, I'm getting pleasure at being the instrument of someone else's suffering. That's ultimate evil. But frankly, that's what every conditioned soul is doing, more or less. Like Robert said, you can steal a diamond, you can steal a cucumber, but you're still a thief. So even if my pleasure is, I'm right, and you're wrong, and I just made you grovel. You know, it's not as bad as splitting somebody's throat, obviously. But it's the same principle. So karmically, it's very different. Karmically, if I get pleasure from killing people, and karmically, if I get pleasure from showing you how wrong you are and how right I am, the karmic reaction is vastly different. But the spiritual reaction is pretty much identical. Which is why the great devotees will say things on the most, like on the most simple of all sinners. You read that and you're thinking, what? What did you do? You didn't do anything. But it's, it's that basic principle. So weakness of heart means I'm taking pleasure where there's no pleasure. I'm looking for pleasure in something that is actually revolting. And like the, the spiritual form of the ghastly humor, the ghastly rasa, is exactly that. If any of us have ever honestly, really, not, um, not to be socially acceptable in our Christian movement, but if we've ever honestly, really seen any of our anarchists and faults and felt really repulsed by it, just genuinely repulsed by it. And it's a kind of ecstasy. So if it's genuine, it actually has some ecstatic element to it. Where you feel very, very close to Krishna, but you also feel very repulsed by this stuff. So that's the, the ghastly humor, which is mostly visible at, uh, at the neutral stage of, of all the fun. Alright, so is this clear how it's weakness of heart? But until and unless we face the fact that I'm looking for pleasure in these things. It's very hard to give them up because we're trying to give up the wrong thing, in essence. It's, it's, if I don't admit I'm taking pleasure in them, then I think I'm trying to give up just a bad habit or I'm trying to give up just something that I really don't want to do and I'm not getting to the core of it. So if I get to the core of it, then I say, okay, I've got to find that pleasure in another way. I've got to find that pleasure in positive. So let's take the thing, we start with taking the thing about anger. What would be a positive way to experience the rest of anger? There aren't many, by the way. If someone offends the devotee. Or if someone is offending God. You know, therefore, Shiva Prabhupada, in talking about this theory that life comes from matter, this, this theory, you know, atheistic theory that matter all of a sudden became alive. He said, anyone who kicks out this theory, uh, will make me very happy. You will advance the Christian consciousness if you kick out this theory of all comes from that. Or if you're kicking something, there's something. So those who are propounding atheism, those who are hurting the devotees, and we should be angry, of course, at the people, but to hate the sin and not the sinner. So that's a use of, of anger. Yes? To denounce wrong etiquette. To denounce? Wrong etiquette. 
Well, you have to be very careful with that. Because denouncing wrong etiquette, you may end up becoming angry at devotees. So I don't, I don't think anger would be an appropriate rasa for that. Uh, and you're probably your appropriate rasa would be more compassion. And, and friendship or maybe parental rather than anger. Because if you're getting angry at devotees just because they have wrong etiquette, you may, you may end up being one of the offenders against the devotees for which the actual devotees will get angry at you. And that probably isn't such a good idea. Let's pick one of these other ones. Uh, I mentioned about ghastliness, that the real ghastliness, we should feel ghastliness. We should feel an ecstasy. Please remember these are all ecstasies, ultimately spiritually. spiritually. We should feel an ecstasy of ghastliness looking at our own sins. How does it become an ecstasy? It has to be related to Krishna. It has to be related to Krishna. If I'm just looking at my sinfulness without relation to Krishna, it becomes depression. And it's, and it's self-centered. Uh, a, a mundane example of this, it's very simple. Just like if I, let's say I offended you, and I really like you, and I really want to be friends with you again. So I, I understand how I offended you, and I come to you and I say, I'm so sorry. So I'm feeling, if I'm actually sorry, if I'm not just saying it because my mother trained me to say I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, can I get out of the corner now? You know, if, it, if it's genuine, which means I actually see how I hurt you, and how I hurt the relationship, then I'm having a ghastliness, a disgust at my own bad behavior in the context of a loving, friendly relationship with you. It's not like I'm just looking in the mirror and going, and I'm so fallen. You understand? Therefore, it's an ecstasy because it has a relationship with Krishna. Can you give me an example of some kind of Maya and what kind of rasa we have? Someone give me an example. Hmm? Can you give me an example of some kind of Maya, some kind of problem, doesn't have to be one on your own list, and what rasa might be connected with that? Friendship, okay, so going out with all office colleagues and you know you're eating things you're not supposed to be eating, drinking things you're not supposed to be drinking, or maybe just talking about a bunch of nonsense and so forth. So that would be the rasa friendship. So what would be a devotional way that you could get that same rasa? It's the side of something. Okay? So what I'd like you to do is, you, just, you can just pick one if you want, but pick at least something from your list. And try to identify what rasa or groups of rasas you're getting from that and what you can substitute for that. What Krishna conscious rasa could you substitute for that? Take one that's relatively easy, just in the, in, for the sake of time. Now we can look at the other ones later. But take something from your list that you feel is relatively easy. And what, where, how could you substitute some devotional rasa for that? Well, that's the identity problem. Um, the, uh, she said that she is having a hard time going from wanting to be the Lord to being a servant because being a servant doesn't appeal to her. I think being a servant doesn't appeal to most of us. Uh, I have not yet met the parent who says to their kids, when you grow up, 
I want you to be a servant. <laughs> I haven't met such parents. In all the pious Hindu families, how many of them tell their children to become servants? Any? No. They say, be an IT specialist, right? <laughs> but I want to be a musician, IG. <laughs> you know, so I mean, it's, this is our general tendency, and we've replaced most of our servants with machines. Okay. Aim for one of the others, if that works. Aim for, uh, aim for awe and reverence or friendship, or, and, and work from that first. Yes? Okay, well, it's probably you're trying to enjoy the parental loss. Then I'm, I'm helpful, I'm the guide, I'm the teacher, uh, I should be respected. And also, there is happiness and anger. There is a kind of enjoyment and anger. There's a, a kind of release of these chemicals in the body, in the brain, and the feeling of, of power and control. There is. I mean, studies about anger show that generally we get angry when we feel threatened, and one of the threats to us are subordinates being insubordinate. We actually feel threatened by that. We feel that our ability, on, on an animalistic level, we feel that our ability to get resources for our very life is threatened if we don't keep our status in the hierarchy or social animals. So if, if ever somebody who's an equal or subordinate is insubordinate or insulting, there's a tendency to want to defend ourselves. And there, there's, some, there's definitely some happiness. I oh, am powerful. You cannot insult me. There's something like that, but it, it probably also mixed with this. With, with I'm, I want to be the helper. I want to be the guide. I know. Yes, and I do want to go on. Yes. Uh-huh. It is really hard for me to stop people while they're walking in the streets. Okay. So what dress I am getting from Thailand? But that's that's something bad. What? That's not something bad. We're talking about things that we shouldn't be doing. We're talking about how we're trying to enjoy false process and things that we shouldn't be doing. Not how you're getting some enjoyment from trying to please Shri Prabhupada by distributing his books even though they're hard. That's a real rasa. So if you're getting a real rasa from that, from it's hard to distribute books because it's hard to get people to stop, but still I'm doing it. And my guess is it's involving probably a little bit of chivalry, and maybe some compassion, and maybe some servant. You're not stopping them. But the fact that you're going out, you wouldn't be going out unless it's giving you something. So it may be it may be giving you a feeling of friendship with the devotees. They expect you to go out and go out. There's some something that is giving, but that's a positive thing. You don't want to get rid of it. Yeah. When uh, I watch uh, comedy videos, say, which is humor and joy, obviously. So I laugh. So I enjoy. Yes, that's humor. So how do you understand that it is unreal? <coughs> and secondly, how to generalize in the spiritual? Well, also, not only is it unreal, but comedy shows. What are we usually laughing at? Other people. Other people suffering, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, 
Think about it. Next time you watch a comedy show, if you remember where you were. I mean, comedy shows are, there's a lot of physical humor. We think it's funny when people fall. Isn't that odd? Have you ever thought about that? That we laugh at scenes where people would normally be getting very hurt? Yes? You know, hopefully they're not actually getting hurt, but probably sometimes they do. Probably sometimes these physical comedians actually get hurt. And a lot of comedy is at somebody's expense. We're laughing at the politicians. You know, they may make it easy for us to laugh at them, but that's another, that's something else. But the fact is that we're laughing at them, how foolish they are. Or, you know, we're, we're laughing at people's foolishness, usually. You know, we're, 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 somehow we're, we're mocking others. And, okay, how could I get comedy and joy in some transcendental way? Was, is there some... Is there some means for getting comedy and joy in some transcendental way? I personally find the nectar devotion a very how would you know it's a comedic book? How would you say it? A book. It's a book of comedy. I don't know, there's so many of the stories of the nectar devotion that are really funny. You know, I'm, I'm reading it in the morning before I do my puja, and sometimes I'm just like crack, cracking up. I mean, it's just it's really, really stories about Christian and his associates. They're really, really funny. There's a lot of stories of Chaitanya Charge. I find after devotion is the, the biggest source of, of comedy stories. And then we're laughing at, you know, our comedy is involved with Krishna and Krishna's devotees. Yes? One thing I didn't understand is, like, you mentioned that if something is taken in context with Krishna, it's just that rasa is different. Yes. So if, if what I'm enjoying is giving pleasure to Krishna, if my enjoyment is in relationship to Krishna, then it's actual enjoyment. So rasa and relationship. I, I want to go on because I have some other suggestions, and we could talk about just this for two hours. Or four. Okay, so here's the same kind of principle. You know, what are you, what are we trying? This is, of course, just gross senses rather than mind. But this concept that what am I trying to enjoy materially, let me replace it with some genuine spiritual enjoyment. In order to do that, you have to identify what material enjoyment you're getting at. Let me replace that with something genuine. Now, we're now starting to go to things that are more mixed with material solutions. It's kind of a mixture. This is called train an incompatible behavior. Train an incompatible behavior. And the first area we're going to look at this is devotional recreation. You know, if you're having a problem with mundane recreation, do some devotional recreation. We can't do the mundane recreation at the same time. Train yourself to do something where the bad habit cannot be done at the same time. Where it's impossible to do both at once. Can you say that again? Alright, well let's say, you know, you're getting angry at somebody, so at the times when you get angry at them, instead smile at them or do something for them. Train a replacement behavior that doesn't allow the bad behavior to happen at the same time. Now, it can even be very similar. 
So when I was the assistant principal in a public school, there was one kid who was driving his teacher crazy because every time a guest came to the classroom, he would jump out of the seat and disrupt the classroom to say hello. Hi, guest! You know? And every time a kid in the classroom had a problem, he would jump out of the seat and run over to their desk to help them. Even if like, they broke their pencil, he'd jump out of the seat and run over to their desk and take their pencil and sharpen it. And the teacher thought that he had a very serious behavior problem. Really, 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 she really did. She was saying to him over and over again all day, I'm the one with the degree, I'm the teacher, sit in your seat. And she even called a parent-teacher conference that I also was invited to, and telling the parents the kids should get therapy and he should go. I said, you know, really all you need to do is train him how to be the official guest reader and official helper. Train him in doing proper behaviors so that he will not be able to do the proper behaviors and the improper behaviors at the same time. You know, how to group the guests, how to help the other students. So you want to train an incompatible behavior. If you're, you know, skipping part of the mantra, you say that part more loudly. Or you change the rhythm of your chanting. You know, you do something that makes the other behavior impossible. You substitute another behavior. You know, you're spending, you know, till 12 o'clock at night watching comedy movies. Go to the temple and have a rajan. Go out to street food, go out to street books. Take that time, get out of the house. So you don't have the TV here. Some behavior that makes it incompatible. And if you can take a behavior that gives you a similar kind of rasa, then that's even better. Okay, so here we're looking at particular, we're going to look at two kinds of incompatible behavior. One is recreation. One is spiritual recreation. So some kind of spiritually enlivening activity you can do that is a recreational type of activity. So Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita 617, that the yogi is temperate in recreation. So we are not opposed to recreation if we're devotees of Krishna anyway. And we believe him. Right, so we want recreation, some recreation to do. Or what did Shil Prabhupada say that he did for recreation? Bhajan. Yes. So having some recreational, devotional recreational activity. Uh, if, if you don't have anything, maybe you need to add one. So I think in our modern society, almost all the recreational activities have become mundane. And they're not even very um, uplifting. Yes? It's really truly shame. Then another incompatible activity, behavior you can do would be a hobby. And a hobby is a little different from recreation because a hobby is almost like work, but it's work you're not probably not getting paid for, but it might be work for somebody else. So some kind of hobby that you'd like to do. I mean, one of my hobbies is uh, being an editor for Back to Godhead. So that's my devotional hobby. You know, and also things that I write. And it's interesting, Shiva Prabhupada in Bible Leader 247, in the purport, he says there's ordinary activities, emergency, and desire. So ordinary, what we normally have to do to live and so forth in our regular service, emergency is emergency. And desire would be a hobby. Have a devotional hobby. Maybe it's making flower arrangements for your deities, or learning embroidery, or you know, learning bhajans. Or I, I know devotees who take the Sanskrit and Bengali bhajans and write them in English. Right? I'm sure many of you are familiar with Javita Prabhu. So that's what he does. His, his ordinary work is he works with the BBT, he's an editor, and so forth. But that's his hobby. It's his devotional hobby. 
that he takes the slokas and he turns them into poeticized English. And then he sings them. Right? And there are a number of people who have hobbies like this. So some kind of devotional hobby. A lot of people have some preaching program that they do as hobbies. And they may do it over the internet and then they have people come from their home or, or something like that where they have some devotional hobby. Alright, you asked about, someone asked me about habits. I said we were going to go over this. So we're talking about training and, and incompatible behavior. We're talking about training a habit. Okay, so this is looking at things from, from a mundane perspective, but the habit we want to replace it with should be Christian conscious. So there's, this is a whole science. We really are not going to get into the whole science in just five or ten minutes. But just to give you an overview. Whenever we have a habit, there's what's called a reminder or a cue, then the habit itself, and then the reward. The reward is what we talked about with the Russell. We are always getting a reward. Okay? If you don't identify the reward, you can't change the behavior. But the next thing that you want to look at is the reminder, the cue. What is it that starts that behavior pattern? So it might be a particular time of the day. You know, maybe, maybe you start noticing, oh, every day at 4 o'clock, I go eat some potato chips. You know, or it could be a particular emotional state. You might say, oh, whenever I'm really tired, I turn on some stupid comedy show and watch the Three Stooges. You know, what's triggering it? What's triggering it? If I feel, am I getting angry at my kids when I feel they're being insubordinate, which is a little different just than I'm trying to correct their behavior for their own sake. So what, what's my cue? And that cue can be the behavior of somebody else. It could be a particular time of the day. It could be a particular place. Certain behavior is triggered by a particular place. It could be certain uh, environment that we're in, or certain other people. It could be a certain state of mind. It could be a certain state of emotion. Does this all make sense to you? You know, maybe there are certain things we do, particularly when we're sad. Certain things we do, particularly when we're angry. Now, they tend to be what we would call more negative emotions that may trigger. Or if we're sick, or we're in pain. You understand? Does this, this make sense to everybody? Or maybe um, when we've completed a project, you know, we, we finished something really difficult, and we feel, oh, wow, I finished something really difficult, now I'm going to reward myself by eating this thing, or watching this thing, or doing this thing. So it could be that kind of thing. Or it could be, all right, you know, all right, I finished my rounds, I read the Bhagavatam, all right, I did my Christian consciousness, now I can give myself some nonsense. It might be... I've seen people do that. I've really, I've really seen people do that. Actually, Prabhupada told you to hear do that. He said, finish my 16 rounds, now I can do any damn thing. And there, there's, you know, okay, oh, all that tapasya, all that austerity, now I get to reward myself. Okay, computer game, here we come. Finish my rounds, leave me alone. So it, it could, that could be that, you know, finish my schoolwork, finish my rounds. You know, or finish my day's work, or whatever. So the, these sort of things can be a cue or a trigger. Now, it, this takes a little bit of detective work for something, especially deeply ingrained habits. 
And then what you want to do is use the same cue to trigger another habit that gives you a similar reward. So I was studying about habits, and this one man was saying how he gained a lot of weight because he found, he found out the main thing he was doing was eating a great big chocolate cookie, chocolate chip cookie every afternoon. And he realized that the trigger was a certain time of the day. It was the middle of the afternoon. And so, you know, he went through the whole routine. What am I doing? All right, I get up from my desk. I go to the cafeteria. I buy the huge cookie. I sit down with my coworkers. I talk for a while. I eat the cookie. And then I go back to my desk. And he thought, well, what's my reward? Is my reward the sugar? Is my reward, you know, something with the cookie itself? Is my reward the friendship? Is my reward taking a break from the job? You know, is my reward getting some exercise and some movement? What's, what's my reward? And he tried doing, you know, eliminating each of those to see what it was. And he found out the main reward was just taking a break from his work and socializing. So what he started to do was, at that time every day, he would take a break and go visit a coworker and just hang out and talk for 10 minutes and go back to his desk and he didn't eat the cookie anymore and he lost the weight. So it, it may take a little bit of detective work. What, what's my cue? What's triggering me to do this thing? What brings this out in me? I mean, I've sometimes found myself in certain kinds of food that certain kinds of food makes me much less compassionate, for example. Isn't that interesting? Or eating at certain times, or, or just being tired. You know, if I'm tired, that's probably not the right time to do something really intensive with somebody, because I'm just not going to have the patience. And I'm much more likely to say something nasty to them. Does that make sense to everybody? I said, yeah, okay, that, that's, that's not a good situation. I'll do something else in that situation. So this is, there's a whole science of how to form new habits, but these are the basic three things. What, what triggers it? This is especially if you're looking at something that's really ongoing. You know, what is it that triggers it? What do I do? Kind of break down the steps. What am I doing? And then as we already talked about, what's my reward? What am I getting at? So you want to find something that gives you a similar reward, and we're not looking for just another material thing. But look for something that gives you a reward on a real level, on a Christian conscious level. And how can I use that cue to help me with that? Now, this is an interesting one. Uh, this is called rewarding the absence of the behavior. So, this is where you're rewarding yourself just for being not bad. Okay, it isn't rewarding yourself for being good, it's rewarding yourself for being not bad. And we really want to do this in baby steps. Rupa Goswami, Shiva Prabhupada, they compare the path of bhakti to a child learning how to walk. That learning how to walk is inherent in the child. And with some practice and some help, they naturally learn how to walk. Now, who here has ever seen a child learning how to walk? Who's seen a child? Okay, so when children learn how to walk, it's not um, an easy or fast process. So first, they stand up for a second. And maybe they're holding on to something. 
may not even may not even be standing up on their own, and they stand up very briefly, and then they fall down. And the child gets very excited. They get very, very, very excited. Their excitement is way out of proportion to your accomplishment. And the parents get very excited. They call the relatives, and nowadays they <laughs> post something on Facebook, and you know they really, really call everybody. She's you know, and then it may be some time before they stand up again. Maybe a day or two or three days before they stand up again. And gradually they stand up and take a step. Maybe even taking a step holding on to something. Maybe taking a step not holding on to something. And then they may take just two steps. And many times babies will plateau. They may just take two steps for months and months and months. And then all of a sudden take four steps. And then all of a sudden take eight steps. So it's very incremental. Now, with babies walking, we are talking about a positive thing, not the absence of a negative thing. But we're going to look at this as the absence of a negative thing. If you're just simply not doing it. You know? And Shil Prabhupada told Shamasundar this. And if you've got Shamasundar's new book, Chasing Rhinos with the Swami. So one of the chapters like that, he's carving Jagannath deities, and Prabhupada comes to see him, and he finds a cigarette pack on top of the deity. Prabhupada knocks it off, and he said, with his, just takes off the deity. He says, decrease by one cigarette a day until you stop. So, you know, if someone who's smoking ten cigarettes a day, if they smoke nine, they celebrate. When they smoke eight, they celebrate. Any baby steps to decrease the behavior. And baby steps. What we often feel is I can't reward myself until I'm perfect. Bad idea. Perfect is too far away. It's too big. You know, it's just too big. And, you know, we, we have lapses. Yes? Yes. It's just like learning how to walk. Nobody gets upset if the kid falls down. The kid doesn't get upset. The parents don't. Nobody gets upset. Nobody says, you're useless. <laughs> And it just doesn't happen. I kids sometimes even gets hurt. You know, the kids learning how to walk, they maybe get bruises. I remember one of my kids, kept, it wasn't from falling, kept walking into things, you know, like falling into things. But it, it doesn't discourage them. And they, they just keep trying and they just keep working at it. So, really, and think of what, what, what is a reward? What do you like? It can be something small, you know, get some mama burfi from the temple, cut it up into ten pieces or something, and give yourself a little piece of burfi. Or just give yourself a high five or something. Or have a buddy that if you have a buddy you can trust with whatever this thing is and, and just tell them, you know, hey, I am down to eight cigarettes. Ooh. You know, in a whole day without watching a horror movie or whatever. You know, and, and something that you can any little incremental thing that you can celebrate. By the way, this stuff works with other people too. So if you want to try to change other people's behavior, although we're not talking about that today, that also is true. So if someone else is doing some behavior that drives you nuts, uh, instead of waiting until they're perfect before you acknowledge it, if they're even a little bit better, some acknowledgement, which may just even be smiling at them. Alright, this is one that people really, these are things that we, all these things I'm mentioning are things we tend to resist. You know, I can't reward myself until I'm perfect. 
This is one of the funniest ones. Here, you intentionally create a cue for the bad behavior. What? Krishna does this. This is in the Shastra. Okay? You want to drink, you can drink at this time in this ceremony. You want to have sex, you get married, you have kids. You want to eat meat, you kill this animal. This Yes? He takes behavior that he'd like to stop and he says, okay, you can do it here. You can do it then. Now, first of all, putting bad behavior on you takes a lot of the pleasure out of it. Because right? a lot of the pleasure we get at doing bad things is that I'm doing something bad. So, giving ourselves permission to do something bad takes a lot of the thrill away from it. And the other thing what you do is you put it on cue is you gradually give the cue less and less and less. And again, people don't want to do this because they don't want to give themselves permission to do what they're trying to give up. So one very effective story I can tell you about this one, one devotee who uh, talked to me and said, Arima, I'm really having a problem with television. She said, I'm doing something called binge watching, which evidently means that you watch practically every waking hour that you possibly can watch. She said, you know, I'll go to the morning program, chant my rounds, have something to eat, and the rest of the day, I'm just simply watching television. And I don't know what to do. She said, every once in a while I stop, and then it starts again. And then she said to me, Ermila, I will absolutely do whatever you say. And she said that to me in the past, and she said that to me in the past about some pretty heavy things. So I, I had confidence that, that she meant this. And by the way, when someone t- says to you, I'll do whatever you say, that's a pretty heavy burden of responsibility. You know, it's not something you take lightly. And I thought, well, if I said to this, this lady, she's, she's a very wonderful, very sincere woman. If I said to her, okay, absolutely no more television. I thought, I don't know if she can do that today. If I say that, she might fail. She's having such a serious problem. So I said, okay, what about... Do you think you could, I didn't just order her, I said, do you think you could limit this to three hours a week? Could you do that? She said, yeah, I think I could. I said, could you also limit it to only watching things that have actual value? No garbage. And I said, I'm not going to tell you what's valuable. I said, you're a big girl, you know. I think she's like 50-something. I said, you know, you're a big girl. You, you You can figure it out. I said, it doesn't have to be spiritually valuable, it can be educational. You know, I said, something. It's got to have some spiritual, educational, moral, ethical, something of value. It can't be absolute, total rubbish. So something of value, three hours a week. Can you do that? She said, yes, I think I can do that. Within two weeks, she contacted me and she said, all of a sudden I had all this free time. She said, I started reading Prabhupada's books and the books of the Acharyas. And I'm just loving it. Thank you so much. And this was about a year ago. She just wrote me about a week ago. She said, you'll be very glad to know the problem is gone. It took a year. It took a year. But the problem is gone. So sometimes putting the bad behavior on cue is very effective. You know, you can say, okay, I'm just spacing out on the internet, I'm not getting any work done, 
you know, I'm just, four hours I've been just scrolling through Facebook, watching cat videos or whatever, you know. And, okay, so I'm going to let myself look at Facebook for 15 minutes and I'm going to set a timer, you know, 15 minutes of Facebook. Or I'm going to look at Facebook only between 8 and 8.30. By the way, you can even do this for family arguments. Really, seriously. Really. You can say anything. You know, I know a couple that were arguing all the time. They went to see the therapist. And then they were getting along as long as they went to see the therapist because they were saving all the arguments for the therapist. <laughs> but you can really do this. You can say, okay, anything you want to argue about, we can argue between 6 and 7 and 6.30. Yeah. You know, and, and we are capable of doing that. Maybe not 100%, but pretty close. Uh, if you know that you can argue about it then, you can do this with your mind doing japa, doing... You can say, we will think about that at 10 o'clock. Now then you have to do that, by the way. Otherwise your mind won't accept it. So if your mind's going, 10 o'clock. <laughs> and then at 10 o'clock, sit down and say, okay, all right, mind. I'm giving you 10 minutes. What do you want to worry about? It's, it's, it's extremely effective. It's much more effective than just always saying no. You know, we, we don't like that. We, 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 you know, talking about rebellion. We rebel against that. No! You're never going to be able to do that again. No! <laughs> all right, all right, all right. You can do it every Friday from 8 to 8.15. Okay. All right, now this one is, is, this is related to the other ones, and this is taking a vow. And I got this from Bhakti Vinod Thakur. Uh, I personally found it to be extremely, extremely helpful. And a lot of the other things can be related to this. So you can take a vow, you know, I'm only going to space out on Facebook for 15 minutes a day, or I'm, I'm going to watch comedy movies only on Saturday from 1 to 2, or I'm only going to have arguments with my husband from 6 to 6.30 at night. <laughs> or, you know, or I'm going to substitute this behavior, you know, instead of watching porn, I'm going to go out to book distribution on Friday nights. Whatever it may be, you take a vow. And I would suggest, Matthew Minotokur says that first take a vow for three days. So I, I've amended his program a little bit. Um, but he said it was first for three days. Now, what I found that I would do is at the end of the three days, I would evaluate now this can be, you can also use this for completely positive things. Like, let's say you want to read a few prophets books more, you want to chant extra, anything like that. You can also use this uh, for that purpose, which is more of what we're looking at tomorrow morning. Although I'm not going to, I wasn't going to mention vows tomorrow morning. But it can be, I also used it for strictly positive things. You know, so I've used it to try to deal with negative things that I want to get rid of, and I've used it to deal with positive things, or sometimes a combination substituting one thing for another. Then at the end of the three days, you evaluate it. You say, how did I do? Was I able to do it? And by the way, the mind is willing to do almost anything for three days. You know, I mean, even something that you're really attached to and you don't think you could ever possibly, possibly give up, you can usually do it for three days. And the mind says, okay, okay. And then you evaluate it. You say, did I like it? Was I happy with it? How easy was it? Do I want to keep doing it? 
you know, do I just can't do it right now? Can I do it with modification? I mean, one time I read Robert Jumper who said it took a valid art teeth not to criticize anybody. And he said he failed after like two hours. So my competitive spirit was roused and I thought, I can do better than that. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to take a valid art teeth not to criticize anybody. Oh my God, it's terrible. And, and very, very quickly I saw what was happening was Krishna was flagging all my criticism, is basically what happened. He was going, and there, and there, there, and over 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 there. And I went, okay, I can't do it either. <laughs> and I thought, later, we'll take this vow, later, <laughs> or another. So sometimes you would do things for three days and say, I, I really wasn't ready for that. I really wasn't ready. I've got to do something else to get myself ready for that or I need to do it in some modified form, or, wow, I loved it. It was great. And then either in some adjusted form or continuing, then you can do it for, I usually do it after three days, two weeks. And then again, evaluation. How did it go? And sometimes you can do this for a few things. It doesn't have to be just for one thing. Okay, a little bit. Still like it too many. And after two weeks again, you evaluate it. How did I do? Did I like it? And so I just said, oh, I love this. This was great. This was just wonderful. What a difference of quality it made for my life. Wow. And other times it's like, eh. And other times it's like, yeah, this is not right. And then after two weeks, then try making it out for a month. Now, some people find it's good if another human being walking around the planet knows about your vows, or some people you can make it just directly to God. That you have to decide yourself. So then a month, and after a month of value, then maybe three months. Now, some of the things I've done like that have just become so much a part of my life that I didn't need to do that anymore. Some of them, just, I, I love them so much, they added so much to my quality of life, they added so much to my relationship with Krishna, that I didn't need any kind of support for. And some of them served me for a while and then just they just weren't relevant anymore. And some of them I do, you know, I did for a while and I gave up and then, oh, I really need to do that again. I really need to go back. And, and it can be it can be a very simple thing, like putting the bad behavior on the queue or substituting the behavior or finding where we can get us and something else. Now this is the last one we're gonna look at, and as I said, I went from higher to lower. This is the lowest one. Uh, this is the one that should be done the most rarely. It always works, but it usually has a very, very high price. It always works, but it usually has a very, very high price. Sometimes it is the proper thing to do. There are some times when this particular method is appropriate. And this is destroy the situation. Take the situation that's full of all these cues and triggers for this behavior and burn it down. Now, the reason that that usually has some very high prices is that you're usually burning down something that also has value. It's like if you burn down your messy house. You know, it, it's, it, that's probably not the, the best choice for not cleaning the house. <laughs> Because then you no longer have a dirty house, but you also no longer have a house <laughs> at all. So this, this solution has to be taken very judiciously. I find that in general, this is the one that people go to first. 
When people have a problem, they come to you and say, can I burn down my house? And the answer should generally be, no. <laughs> Don't burn down your house. But occasionally, there are times when this is appropriate. When it's appropriate and it's necessary. So changing your ashram, going from Brahmacharya to Rasta, Rasta to Vanaprasta, Vanaprasta to Sanyas, Brahmacharya to Vanaprasta, Brahmacharya to Sanyas, making some big change in your ashram. Sometimes that is appropriate. Sometimes the reason we're struggling with something is that we're, we're ourselves not situated properly. That we're, we're not acting in our proper capacity. And this isn't just going from Brahmacharya to Grahasta. It's also going from Grahasta to Vanaprasta. It's also going from Vanaprasta to Sanyas. It may be going from Brahmacharya to Sanyas. It's not, it's not always going toward Grahasta. It may be going toward renunciation. Or some, some change in your living situation. Getting rid of things that you don't use or that are just a problem in your life. If you have things in your life that 99% of your association with them is degrading and only 1% is service, maybe you need to get rid of them. I mean, I was talking in the beginning about Sangha. There was a time when Krishna showed me that, that I was doing something detrimental to my spiritual life and that the cure was that I had to stop being part of a particular Sangha of devotees. Because I could see, although there were many things that were enlivening about that Sangha, we were getting some service done, it also brought out some things in me that went out. And it was, it was with regret that I just said, I'm sorry, I can't be a member of this group anymore. I can't work on this project anymore. And there have been several times that I had to do that. That I just said, that this, this particular situation, it's, it's, it's not a bad situation, but it's a bad situation for me now. That the way I'm dealing with this group, the way I'm dealing with this service is not helpful for my spiritual life. And I haven't been able to find a way to make it so. There's no way I've been able to adjust it. Uh, moving someplace. You know, of course, we have a very mobile, transient society in a lot of society. Sometimes it may help. There, there are times when go to a different place, a different situation, different people, and it, can, it, can, it does happen. It's something you may have been struggling with for years and years and years and years and years, and you move to a different situation and it takes care of you. Changing careers. That can also, but again, this seems to be people's first thing. Why? Because this thing doesn't require any introspection. It doesn't require any humility. It doesn't require any actual deep change. So this is the one people go to when they get stuck on it. I gotta get married. I gotta get a divorce. I gotta get a kid. My kids gotta grow up. I gotta get a new job. I gotta move to a new temple. I need a new child president. You know, I gotta change something in the externals. So sometimes, sometimes, sometimes it is appropriate. But it should really be, it should be something that we don't go to as just our automatic default. All right, the last one we're going to look at is patience. <laughs> Krishna consciousness works. Krishna consciousness really does work. Some things just take time. There may be some things that I just have to wait. 
gone through everything else and I'm still struggling with something, it may just take time. I may not be ready yet to deal with it. I just have to wait. And as I progress and as I advance in Krishna consciousness, the time will come when I can get rid of it. I don't know if I tell the story right. You're going to think this is so silly. Anyway, but it wasn't silly to me. So when my husband and I uh, entered the Vital Trust Order in 96, so I, I immediately gave my bangles to my daughter. And I, who did I give my nose ring to? You know, one of the girls in the family. And I just started wearing white with borders. And, but I kept my earrings. Well, I, I was raised in a family where if you went out without jewelry, you were dressed. Yeah, that was how I was raised, by my mother. You know? So I just didn't feel right going out without earrings. I felt like I wasn't trapped. There's something wrong with me. So I would wear them, and then I, I tried to simplify them, and I took all my little ones, and, and I would take them out, and then I would put them back in, and they would go off and on, and off and on. And finally one day I said, why am I carrying around these little pieces of gold with me all over the world? But it took me years. It was years. And I just, you know, most of the time I just left it. And every once in a while I look at it and say, I really got to do something about this. And it, it was actually one particular day when I understood, oh, I have to do this. And I looked at it and I was, it doesn't bother me at all anymore. But it took years. And you might say, well, that's not much money. But it was for me, actually. It was something that, that actually, that for me in that circumstance was wrong. That's so, all you guys think, that's a ridiculous example, but I'm sorry, that was the best I could do. And and no one was willing to come with it anyway. So we may, we, we may have to sometimes wait for things. We may have to, it may take some time for us to even see it honestly. I mean, I've also had some things where people told me for 10 years, this is so embarrassing, or 20 years, or really you're doing this thing and it's not good and you should give it up. And I think either, oh, you guys are just critical. Or it's not a big deal, or something, or well, it really has some benefit. I had so many rationalizations. At a certain point, I saw it for what it was and said, oh my God, these people are right, I shouldn't be doing it. You follow? But I had to be ready. And just, you know, beating yourself up all the time. I gotta be perfect today. Good luck with that. You know, really good luck with that. I mean, on the spiritual level, we're already perfect. It's not something we have to become. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to uncover what's already there. And as we advance in Krishna consciousness, our maya and our attraction to maya and our realization for maya is will go away by itself. And the things that we can think about this in our life is there something I really struggled with five years ago or ten years ago that now I don't even think about. We especially find this if you're trying to preach to people who are starting at kind of a different level than you. And I realized this one time, where in the world was I? Some country in the Middle East. And there was a girl saying to me how hard it was to take up Krishna consciousness because her non-devotee friends were giving her a hard time. And the first thought I had in my mind was, what a petty, insignificant problem. My next thought was, do you remember when for you that was the biggest problem in your spiritual life? And I went, oh my God, 
there was a time when that was the biggest problem in my spiritual life. Right? When those girls said, come to see the RAE, that was my biggest problem. It was a very big problem. And all of a sudden I realized that was a very big problem for me. And it's now been so gone that I didn't even realize it was gone. I forgot. Well, I like what I think I said this morning. How, you know, we have a stomachache and we think, I'll be so happy when my stomach isn't hurting and then our stomach stops hurting and we forget to be happy. <laughs> and I think a lot of it's the same way. You know, there's something that's really, that's like, how am I ever going to deal with this? Oh my God, it's such an impediment. And when it's gone, we forget that we were happy. We forget to celebrate. We forget, wow. Like we're all walking, right? We forget how excited we were when we were little babies and we stood up. Like, yeah, sure, well, yeah, well, yeah. So I think we look back and we think, wow, there, there was something that was a struggle for me, there was something that was really hard, that was just so difficult, and now it's like breathing. I don't even notice that I'm doing it. And so if I keep on going to bhakti, if there's things I haven't been able to get rid of with any of the other things, maybe I just have to go. Okay, so here's the list of the things that we went over. Uh, what I'd like you to do is take, take just a few minutes, probably about five, not more than ten, and look at the list of things and see if there's any of these, don't pick more than one or two for right now, but see if there's any of these that you could apply to something on your list. And some of these, of course, could be done in combination. Okay, so if you just work individually and look at your list, and just you might just pick one for right now. Is there any of these you could apply in one? And, and pick something that's not going to be that hard. It's, it's a good if you give yourself a, uh, a victory. You know, pick, pick, pick the easiest one. Don't pick the hardest one. Uh, if you don't, uh, are there any more left on the chair? Okay, maybe uh, someone can check to see. Are there any more over there? Are there any extra? If anyone doesn't have one, please raise your hand. Until that stage is reached, 
our progress is going to be unsteady. And there, there's no particular uh, trick that one can do to be steady before you're steady. It, it just isn't. People ask all the time, how can I become steady? The answer is you have to come to 50% of the motorbikes. And we do that by, by getting rid of these problems. As we get rid of these problems and we come to 50% witness, our spiritual life becomes much easier. It becomes much more about attraction to Krishna rather than about getting rid of Maya. The, the focus kind of changes. But no matter how advanced we become in spiritual life, our body and mind is still going to be subjected to the modes of material nature. The question is how effective we are by them and what we do with them. So I thought I would, I would end with this. And this is something that I, I read in different seminars and different contexts, but I think you'll find it very helpful. So looking at Bhagavad Gita 14, 22 to 25, this is where Krishna gives the symptom of one who's, uh, who's conquered the modes of material nature. And he says, uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing here. The Supreme Personality of God had said, O Son of Pandu, he who does not hate illumination, attachment, and delusion when they are present, or long for them when they disappear, who is unwavering and undisturbed through all his reactions of material qualities, remaining neutral and transcendental, knowing that the modes alone are active. Listen to this again. He who does not hate illumination, attachment, and delusion when they are present, or long for them when they disappear. This is the principle of neither grasping nor pushing away. What we talked about getting in your, in your actual identity. Looking at the purport, this is just a part of the purport, and I'm only going to read a part of this part. Um, reading from the third sentence. When a living entity stays in this material world, embodied by the material body, it is to be understood that he is under the control of one of the three modes of material nature. When he is actually out of the body, then he is out of the clutches of the material modes of nature. But as long as he is not out of the material body, he should be neutral. Then I'm going to read a, a section from a book by C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters, and this is, if you're familiar with Screwtape Letters, you'll see how I have slightly adapted this. Uh, screw tape is written backwards, so I made it forwards. Has no one ever told you about the law of undulation? As spirits, humans belong to the eternal world, but their bodies and minds inhabit time. This means that while their spirit can be directed to an eternal object, their bodies, passions, and imaginations are in continual change, for to be in time means to change. Their nearest approach to constancy, therefore, is undulation, the repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly fall back, a series of troughs and peaks. You can see this undulation in every department of life, interest in work, affection for friends, physical appetites, all up and down. As long as one lives on earth, periods of emotional and bodily richness and liveliness will alternate with periods of numbness and poverty. One must ask what use God wants to make of the dryness and dullness of faith. In God's efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, he relies on the trows even more than on the peaks. Some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper trows than anyone else. The reason is this, 
the obedience which God demands is not the absorption of its will into his, but quite a different thing. He wants servants who can become sons. He is full and flows over. He wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. And that is where the trials come in. You might wonder why God does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human beings in any degree he chooses and in any moment. But the irresistible and the indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of his desire forbids him to use. Merely to override a human will as a spell presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would most certainly do would be for him useless. He wants the living beings to be one with him but yet themselves. Merely to cancel them or assimilate them will not serve. He is prepared to do a little overriding in the beginning. He will set them off with communications of his presence, which, though faint, seem great to them, with emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation. But he never allows this state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later he withdraws, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the entity to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trial periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of being he wants it to be. Hence the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. He wants the living being to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Illusion is never more in danger than when a human being, no longer desiring but still intending to do the will of God, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still always. So, any questions? Yeah, there's a word, Like wave. Yeah. Sorry. That's fine. Undulation. Undulation. To wave, but to wave. Wave. Basically, the state of unsteadiness. Any other questions? Yes. I couldn't catch the difference explained between hobbies and um, I don't think recreation is necessarily trying to accomplish something. A hobby, you're still trying to, you have some, uh, you're trying to accomplish, you're, you're sewing a blanket for your deities, you're planting flowers. Recreation could just be you're sitting and singing a song, you know. I'm not sure if there's a clear and absolute distinction. Because each of them are, are mentioned, that Krishna mentions recreation and Prabhupada mentions desired activities. Therefore, I've looked at them as two separate categories, but they, they could be the same thing. Yes? Could you tell us something about C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis is a very famous Christian author. He wrote the Narnia books, which you probably heard. The Narnia books are, uh, they're, they're Christian fables that were written for children to teach different religious and spiritual concepts. 
So he, he, I would say that C.S. Lewis understands very well about neophyte spirituality. He doesn't understand much about higher levels, but he really has a grasp of the beginning levels of spirituality. He's a very, very wise person in that. I'm not sure. In this century, he died. Didn't die that long ago. Can I ask a question from your earlier session? Uh, yeah, but let's first see if anyone has a question from this session. Yeah, if you want to comment on this for, for us, it connects with the Bhagavad universe and just <laughs> recap how you, why you put it in here. Why did I put it in here? Because I felt that, that uh, it was a very clear explanation of, the, of how we should relate to the fact that our bodies and minds are affected by the modes of material nature and what we can do with it. I, I think there's a tendency to think that getting free of the modes of nature means I rejoice when my body and mind are in goodness and I hate when my body and mind are in ignorance or in passion. And Krishna's saying very clearly, don't either desire them or hate them. Well, if I'm not going to either desire them or hate them, what am I going to do when my body and mind are in passion and ignorance? i got to do something. You can't just go to sleep every time your body and mind is in passion and ignorance. Some of us would be sleeping a lot. You know, what, what, what are you going to do? And I, I really like the way C.S. Lewis is looking at this. He's saying, you know, when you're not feeling enlivened, when you're not feeling illuminated, when you're you know, basically saying when you're not in goodness, when, when everything just looks blank and, and difficult, then you can understand that there's also some spiritual benefit to you going on. Even if at that particular moment you don't have a taste. That you're, you're, there's something valuable happening. Because it doesn't feel like there's anything valuable happening. But he's saying there is something valuable happening. And he's saying this is part of the relationship. You know, when I learned how to ride a bike, my father first was holding on to the bike. And at a certain point, he let go. And so what C.S. Lewis' point is, is that sometimes it appears that Krishna is not helping us, and sometimes it appears that he's moving away from us. I gave a, a whole seminar on this called Krishna's Reciprocation, which is based on the Bhagavatam 10th Canto, chapter 32, where Krishna leaves Rasalina and then returns to the gopis, and he's explaining the relationship that he has with different levels of devotees and how he deals with them. But even if we're, even if we're not feeling a taste, we're not feeling that Krishna's there, there's some value to going on. There's some value even just to trying. Vaisheshika Prabhu in their morning session was talking about Bhagavad Gita 331. Even if you can't do it, just that you want to do it, there's the same thing C.S. Lewis is like. Even if you just intend to do the will of God, just the intention that Krishna's pleased even if we really mess up but our intention is to please him and we're trying and it's even in a state of difficulty that we can go on and please him when everything's wonderful you know we wouldn't really be addressing the other things that we have to be addressing no it doesn't stay like that forever so I predicated reading this that if we do get to a point in Mr. where we're not so affected by the modes of passion. So someone like C.S. Lewis, I find he can't really go, he can't, doesn't seem to be able to go to that platform. He seems to stay. His writings seem to be all below Nishtha. He doesn't really understand 
elements. But, I mean, there are some Christian writers who do, certainly. St. Teresa of Avalon, they certainly understand very high levels of, of Christian consciousness. But if someone is not yet at NISTA, you know, if we're not yet at NISTA, we're going to be, what, how do we deal with them? How do we see it? How do we see it as mercy? How do we see it as reciprocation? That's, that's my intention. Yes. devotees are willing to go out and preach and ask people. That's, that's the sense in which we mean that the devotees are more merciful than Krishna. That, that Krishna is not going to interfere with anyone's free will. But the devotees will go out and do Harinam, we'll go out and give prasadam, we'll go out and give books. So in that sense. So I think you're kind of conflating two things that shouldn't be conflated. The person that we're trying to please is Krishna. And only Krishna is able to really understand our intentions. There's, there's no other person, especially a person who's not 100% pure, who's going to understand our intentions. But even those who are 100% pure, there's a difference between God and a jiva. God and a jiva. Even a liberated jiva. This is explained in the fourth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna says, many, many verses you and I have passed, I remember all of them, you do not. And Prabhupada talks in that purport about the difference between even a pure devotee jiva and God. They're not the same. So only Krishna is in our heart and knows all of our intentions. Krishna responds to our intentions, not the result. Other jivas tend to respond to results and not intentions. They can't see the intentions. They see the result. And often the humans guess at our intentions and they often guess wrong. Therefore, I find it extremely important and something that I, I talk about a lot. I talked about it especially in, this, in the morning session. Work to please Krishna. Don't work to please anybody independently of Krishna. If you're working to please people independently of Krishna, it means you have the wrong identity. If your identity is, I'm a resident of New Vrindavan and a member of the Hare Krishna movement in 2017, is that going to be true in the local Vrindavan? No. So that's not your internal identity. We might think, oh, well, that's a very spiritual identity. Okay, it's more spiritual than saying I'm an American. But it's not really spiritual. It may be spiritually helpful. But it's not ultimately spiritual. And at a certain point, it's not even frankly spiritually helpful anymore. So an identity, you know, I'm a good sadhaka. 
I'm a good, loyal member of the International Society for Christian Consciousness. That may be very helpful at a certain point. But, it's, but that's not ultimately true either. You understand? It's, it's not ultimate truth. And if, if the problem with those identities is I can be trying to please people separately from Krishna. I'm trying to prove that I'm a loyal member of a religious organization on the earth planet in particular. You understand? And it can become not that much different than trying to prove I'm a loyal American or I'm a loyal football fan or something like that. It's very easy for it to become something like that. And as soon as I think I want to be a good something that's not who I am, then I am very dependent on the opinion of other people as to whether or not I've achieved that. I mean, if I want to be a good daughter, well, if my mother and father don't think I'm a good daughter, then I can't think I'm a good daughter. And it may not only be my parents, it may be my sisters and brothers. They have to think that way too. Maybe my friends also have to think that way. I'm very dependent on other people's opinion of me in order to keep that identity. And so if other people think that I'm not a good daughter, I become very disturbed with them, especially if I have good intentions and I'm trying to be a good daughter. What are they threatening? They're threatening my false identity. But if I think my false identity is myself, I think they're threatening me. I feel like they're, they're like holding a knife to my throat. They're going to cut my head off. Because if that's who I am and what I am, and they're threatening that, I, I think what really helped me with this is one devotee whose name I will not mention. And, and I hope you can't even figure out who this is. But there was one devotee I know, and I knew this person for a very, very long time. And for very good reasons. The person did something wrong, and there were good reasons. Um, this person was very much rejected by the society of devotees. Not by everybody, but by the society in general. And the person did do something wrong, although the rejection was more extreme than what they did wrong. It wasn't a one-to-one -one relationship between what they did wrong and how they were treated. Well, they did do something wrong. Now, this person, though, has gone on in this person's, I don't want to say what gender they are, in this person's Krishna consciousness. I remember seeing this person, uh, actually, out of Oberdon. I thought, well, this person looks happy, they look bright, and they, they had a service, and they were doing some preaching, and they had devoted friends, and I thought, wow. Even someone who was rejected by the society of devotees, and for good reason, that that did not stop this person's advancement in Krishna consciousness. I was fascinated. And I thought, wow, I'm so afraid of that. Because that's like what you're talking about. I'm in a society of devotees and they criticize me and even when I have good intentions and they give me a hard time and maybe they won't think I'm a good devotee and maybe they won't like me. And I'm thinking, how can devotees act like that? And it affects my faith and it affects my enthusiasm. Do we really need the other devotees to certify that we're okay. No, we don't. We really don't. Isn't that, it's sort of coming from the list? Yes. Like as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, if, if another devotee says, oh, you know, Nick, you're not, you've done something wrong, or we don't like the way that you're doing this piece, then it's the friendship yes. that I'm actually looking, I'm trying yes. to enjoy. Very I'm, not, I'm not actually serving God or Krishna, Excellent. but I, I'm serving my friendship. 
And I think for me personally, as you're speaking, I go, what I'm scared of most is that if I turn to God fully, that I won't have friends anymore. That's right. That I might, I, I'll be a loner. That's my That's biggest right. fear. That's right. I was giving class at uh, 26nd Avenue once in New York, and I don't remember exactly the point I was making, but at the, at the end, one, of the, one lady who was fairly new to Christian consciousness, she said, so if one of my friends dies, what I'm really mourning is that I've lost my part of identity as being their friend. And all of a sudden I went, yeah. I, I'm really sorry to say this, we're using others. We, we're thinking it's Russell, but it's not. I'm using others in order to give myself a particular false ego conception of myself. And when they don't do that, I become very disturbed. When they tell me I'm not a good friend, I'm not a good, loyal member of the New Vrindavan community, I'm not a good receptionist, I'm not a good this, I'm not a good that, I become very disturbed. And I think, what kind of a person are you anyway? I thought you were my friend. I thought you were, you know, you're my daughter, you're my mother, you're my, we're in the same, or you're a devotee. <laughs> you're not supposed to treat me this way. But that wasn't ever what it was about. It's not what we're here for, actually. And if we live on that platform, then we become just another religious institution of which there are already plenty. Already one. So many. Now, I understand that the vast majority of us are going to be here to be in another religious institution. I understand that. But let's try as individuals to go beyond that. Let's try to have the person we're trying to please be, Krishna. And if I'm filled with that, then my relationship with others is just giving then I don't need anybody to certify me as anything in this world. Then I'm not dependent on other people's approval. What does Krishna say? Such a person has no need to do anything and no need to give up anything and is not dependent on any other living being. So I may not be at that point today and I may not be at that point tomorrow and I may not be at that point next month, but at least I know that that's where I want to go and I know that my problems with others are not exactly due to their behavior. Although they may have bad behavior, and that's between them and God, and that's not my problem generally. Occasionally other people's bad behavior is my problem, if they're my child or something, but generally it's not. My problem is that I'm not dependent on their certifying me. I'm not dependent on their approval of me. I'm not dependent on their certifying me. And if I'm upset at that thing, it means that I'm still in that space. And then I can step back and say, the real problem is that I'm trying to enjoy Rasa by exploiting others in this world. That's my problem. My problem is not how these other people are dealing with me. There's a nice letter from Prabhupada that says, you know, whenever we have difficult dealings with others, it's not due to their lack of Krishna consciousness, it's due to our lack of Krishna consciousness. That doesn't mean that other people's dealings is necessarily all good. You but if it affects my faith, if it affects my happiness, if it, that's, my, that's because I have the wrong shelter. And that's really what we were talking about this morning and this afternoon. But it, it means I have the wrong shelter. And I'm thinking, or, or I'm trying to be their shelter. Maybe I'm trying to be Krishna for them. 
they're saying, hey, you're a pretty lousy Krishna. Now, what do you mean a lousy Krishna? You're supposed to be happy with me. I'm supposed to be able to satisfy you. And they're saying, well, you're not. How dare you say that? I'm not perfect. Or I'm thinking they're my Krishna. They're going to be Krishna for me. They're going to understand my intentions, even when the result doesn't turn out right. They're going to be happy with a leaf or flower or fruit or water. You know? They're going to be happy with a couple of grains of chipped rice. Because they're going to be Krishna. And they're not. So I, I, what I found is just being able to identify the problems is a great relief. Even if I can't fix the problem. It's this huge relief. Oh, I have the wrong identity. <sighs> and then I don't have to get so upset with other people. And you say, okay, they're doing wrong things. I do wrong things. They've made a mistake in how they're doing. I make mistakes in how... Then I, then I can say that. You follow? But I can't even say that until I've backed off from from wanting to get Rasa by enjoying them. It is 6.30. I do want to end on time. Uh, Krishna willing, uh, we will have another seminar tomorrow morning. What we're going to be looking at tomorrow morning is uh, scheduling and prioritizing how we can have time for high-quality sadhana in a busy life. And what we'll be looking at tomorrow afternoon is how we can meditate on Krishna outside of sadhana in our life in general. That's a little different from what we did this morning, which was how I can see my life as service. It's going to be just really meditation. So we're getting into, um, into really seeing, seeing Krishna in everything in the world, and then Sunday on Sunday. Thank you very much. Shri Prabhupada Ki Jai.